Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. 417 a gallon and climbing. The lead starts right now. After days of targeting towns, shelling homes, slaughtering civilians, the Russian government is now proposing a new ceasefire, one that would start in just a few hours in some of the Ukrainian cities that they are pummeling. Then, Vladimir Putin claimed it would take only days to complete his quote-unquote operation in Ukraine, but almost two weeks in, the 40-mile Russian convoy hasn't really moved. And U.S. intelligence says between two and 4,000 Russian soldiers have been killed. So where does the Russian invasion of Ukraine actually stand? And banned President Biden blocking all Russian oil and natural gas imports to the United States. Could this send the record-breaking gas prices in the U.S. soaring even higher? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today with breaking news and a, quote, ugly next few weeks, unquote, ahead for Ukraine. That's the warning from CIA Director William Burns today. And as night fell on Ukrainian cities in the last few hours... New shelling. Russian shelling. This time in the crucial port city of Mykolaiv. The city's mayor saying Russia has also been dropping cluster bombs as its forces approach. Earlier today, Russian airstrikes devastated parts of the northeastern town of Sumy, leveling these homes you see. Local Ukrainian officials say that 21 innocent Ukrainian civilians were killed, 21, including two Ukrainian children. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky says at least 50 children have been killed by the Russians since the Russian invasion began. After that attack, some Ukrainian civilians were able to flee Sumy after Russia and Ukraine agreed to a temporary humanitarian corridor to allow for some evacuations. Now Russia says it is proposing another ceasefire in five Ukrainian cities, one that would start in just a few hours. Although there is not yet any confirmation or guarantee, they will abide by the agreement. Let's get straight to CNN's Clarissa Ward who is live for us, as always, in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. And Clarissa, the first humanitarian corridor is now closed. How did that temporary, located, uh, discreet ceasefire go? And, And what do we know about this new proposal the Russians are making? Well, so essentially the new proposal is very similar, Jake, to what had been proposed yesterday, that five cities, Kiev, Cherniv, Sumy, Kharkiv, and Mariupol would all have a ceasefire that would start at 10 a.m. Moscow time, that's 9 a.m. local time, and that would allow for those humanitarian corridors to finally be used to let these uh, poor people out who have been trapped under heavy fighting for, for many days now. The one uh, place where it did seem to function at some level that you mentioned was in the northern city of Sumy, which has been hit very hard, according to Russian authorities. More than 700 people were evacuated from that city, although we're also hearing reports that a second convoy uh, that was supposed to leave the city did get pinned down. 
The place where it really didn't work uh, appears to be once again the southeast port city of Mariupol. This is a city of half a million people, hundreds of thousands of whom are trapped inside. They have little food, no power, no heat. Their frigid temperatures, and of course, they've been coming under constant shelling. And we're hearing from Ukrainian authorities that once again, they were not able to ship in or rather drive in a huge amount of humanitarian aid that's so desperately needed because apparently that convoy came under some kind of fire. Now, the Russians are proposing once again to do a very similar uh, ceasefire tomorrow morning, again, starting at 9 a.m. local time. Ukrainian authorities have only responded by saying, quote, it is difficult to trust the occupier. So I think that gives you a sense of the skepticism here on the ground, not just from authorities, but from ordinary people who find it hard to believe at this stage that there will be a concerted and sincere effort to really ensure that people can get out and that much needed aid can finally get in, Jake. And Clarissa, tell us more about um, Ukraine's first lady. Um, She just put out an emotional message on Facebook talking about the suffering of civilians in Ukraine. Yeah, it's a it's a very evocative and passionate letter that she has penned on Facebook. We haven't heard a lot from Ukraine's first lady. We did, of course, hear President Zelensky some time ago say uh, that his wife and family were still in town. And indeed, in this letter, she appears to indicate that she is still in Kiev. But basically, she is making an appeal about the plight of civilians, the number of children being born in bomb shelters who have never known peace in their few days on Earth, the difficulty of getting simple medicines for people with asthma, for people with diabetes, who are trapped in some of these hard-hit areas that have been largely cut off. And she finishes off this letter with a pretty uh, powerful warning. She says, this is a war in Europe close to the EU borders. Ukraine is stopping the force that may aggressively enter your cities tomorrow under the pretext of saving civilians. And she goes on to say, if we don't stop Putin, who threatens to start a nuclear war, there will be no safe place in the world for any of us. And this, Jake, is something that I have seen echoed time and time again by Ukrainians, both who are fighting and ordinary civilians. They see this as an existential battle for a way of life, for a set of values, for a belief in the principles of self-determination, sovereignty, democracy. And they don't see that as something that is restrained or limited to Ukraine's borders. They see this as a fight that ultimately has a ripple effect across the globe, especially if Ukraine is not able to win this fight. Though it's interesting to hear from NATO officials today, Jake, they say Russia still not making any significant progress on the ground, despite the massive amount of manpower they have moved in here, Jake. Clarissa Ward in Kyiv, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Please stay safe. To the southeast now on CNN's Sam Kiley. He's in Dnipro, Ukraine. Sam, fighting has intensified uh, tonight in the strategic port city of Mykolaiv. Um, what do we know about the latest shelling? Uh, well, in Mykolaiv, where uh, Nick Payton Welsh, my uh, colleague, has been uh, based for some time, the reporting out of there is that uh, a lot of shelling has been outgoing. This is a city that has been very successful so far in seeing off various uh, Russian attempts to penetrate. It's a very important port city. It is the access route to Odessa, uh, the third largest city in the, in the whole country, but also perhaps even more importantly, uh, a point, a jumping off point p- potentially for 
uh, swinging round to attack places like this, where I am in Dnipro, uh, opportunity for the Russians to go up the uh, Dnipro River. But they, uh, the shelling has been going in and out. The local mayor uh, has, or deputy governor rather, has been preparing his citizens. Uh, Nick was reporting how large piles of uh, car tyres have been put up. Uh, there's also been a footage that we've seen recently of militias and soldiers fighting back using uh, anti-tank weapons to try to recapture, they say, successfully the airport there. So it's, an, it's another example, I think, Jake, of how there is Russian attacks on civilian areas because they appear to be getting bogged down militarily. Sam, Ukrainian President Zelensky had some very harsh words, not just for Russia, but for Western leaders today. Tell us what he said. Well, he, he was, he's, he's been getting angrier and angrier over the course of this week in a lot of his statements made on Facebook. He's been speaking from, uh, in the last 36 hours, for the first time in some time, from his uh, presidential offices rather than from some unknown location. And on this occasion, he, he took the opportunity to berate the international community, really the whole world, for failing to step in more aggressively, particularly when it comes to establishing a no-fly zone over his country, something that NATO has ruled out. Of course, the danger is there. You would obviously bring bring NATO into conflict with Russian pilots uh, and potentially start a much wider war, something that the uh, NATO is uh, deeply uh, uh, sceptical would be uh, positive in any way. So, uh, But he's, he even used the term genocide, which of course is a word that's being used quite a lot by Ukrainian politicians, probably erroneously, but it, sense, it, it, it does show the level of frustration anger uh, and incredulity that they fear or feel as they fight off this unprovoked invasion from a neighbor that they believe is part of their defense of wider global democracy, Jake. All right, Sam Kiley in Dnipro, Ukraine. Thank you. Please stay safe. It's pretty clear by now, while Russia has slaughtered thousands of innocent Ukrainian civilians and seized large swaths of land, the war is not going quite as Putin had planned U.S. intelligence estimates between two and 4,000 Russian forces have already been killed in Ukraine. CNN's Jim Shudo now reports from Lviv in the West. Nearly two weeks into the invasion, the war in Ukraine has become a slow, grinding conflict. Not the blitzkrieg advance the Russian military had planned and hoped for. Russia's failure to rapidly seize Kyiv and overwhelm Ukrainian forces has deprived Moscow of the quick military victory that probably had originally expected. U.S. and NATO military assistance to Ukrainian forces has flowed in quickly and in enormous quantities. To date, the U.S. and partners have provided some 17,000 anti-tank missiles, including the Javelin and AT-4 shoulder-fired systems. And, according to a senior U.S. official, some 3,700 anti-aircraft missiles, including the Stinger shoulder-fired missile the vast majority since the start of the invasion. These missiles have had an immediate impact on the battlefield. This is a shoulder-fired missile shooting down a Russian attack helicopter. It's a race between uh, our ability and NATO's ability to push forward supplies, such as the 17,000 missiles that have been recently approved, to get those into the hands of the Ukrainian warfighters before the Russians can regroup and get their logistics lines of communication and their capabilities up to snuff. Military losses are harder to gauge. According to two senior U.S. officials briefed on the intelligence, U.S. estimates of Russian military assets lost or inoperable range as high as 8 to 10 percent. 
close to double the losses the U.S. assessed last week as it has gathered more information. The U.S. estimates the Ukrainian military has lost a similar percentage of its forces. These estimates mostly account for losses of equipment, including jets and helicopters, tanks and armored personnel carriers and supply trucks, which are easier to verify. As for losses of personnel, the U.S. estimates Russia has lost somewhere between two and 4,000 soldiers, though this assessment comes with low confidence. The U.S. does not have reliable information on losses of Ukrainian military personnel. On the battlefield, Russian forces have advanced more quickly in the south from Russian-controlled territory in Crimea, more slowly in the east and the north, though they continue efforts to surround cities such as Kharkiv. A senior U.S. official tells me the U.S. believes Russia is still several days from being able to surround the capital, Kyiv, and after that faces a protracted battle to occupy the city itself. Our analysts assess that Putin is unlikely to be deterred by such setbacks and instead may escalate. We assess Putin feels aggrieved the West does not give him proper deference and perceives this as a war he cannot afford to lose. As Russia's advance has stalled, its forces have increasingly targeted the civilian population with aerial bombardment and shelling. Following a time-worn Russian strategy it pursued ruthlessly in Chechnya in the 1990s and more recently in Syria. At least 474 civilians, including 29 children, have been killed since the invasion began, this according to the UN Human Rights Office, and a further 861 injured, though the UN believes the true figure is likely to be, quote, considerably higher. There is a sobering reality to this war. The Ukrainian military has certainly outperformed and continues to. However, the Russian military continues to grind on, gaining territory, though more slowly than hoped, and as it does, acting with more and more impunity about civilian lives. And Jake, when I speak to U.S. officials, ask them how they believe this contact conflict will continue to develop, they say a more ruthless Russia more civilian casualties. They don't see Putin pulling back. Yeah. Jim Shudo doing amazing work uh, for us in Lviv, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Please stay safe. President Biden going it alone, announcing a U.S. ban on all Russian oil and natural gas. But without European allies following suit, is this move mostly symbolic? Then Russian state media releasing the first pick of a U.S. basketball star since her arrest at the Moscow airport. Stay with us. In our money lead today, President Biden is warning Americans that gas prices in the U.S. will continue to climb, especially now that the U.S. is banning all imports of Russian energy, including oil, natural gas, and coal. This move could, at least it's an attempt to, cripple Russia's already struggling economy and, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, cost the American people. A new effort to punish the Kremlin. This is a step that we're taking to inflict further pain on Putin. President Biden announcing today the U.S. will ban Russian oil, gas and coal after days of deliberation and growing pressure from lawmakers in both parties, arguing that Russian President Putin shouldn't profit from American purchases. We will not be part of subsidizing Putin's war. Biden was initially hesitant to implement the ban amid concerns that would rattle global energy markets with U.S. gas prices soaring to $4.17 today, up 55 cents in just the last week. Defending freedom is going to cost. It's going to cost us as well. And with this action, it's going to go up further. 
The ban shutting off a relatively small flow of oil into the United States, which ultimately gets less than 10% of its energy from Russia. But Biden says European allies, who rely much more heavily on Russian energy, are unlikely to follow suit. Many of our European allies and partners may not be in a position to join us. We can take this step when others cannot. The president declining to say whether the U.S. will try to import more oil from countries already under sanctions, like Iran and Venezuela, which some Democrats are criticizing. We're trying to prune back on Putin, right? We shouldn't be advancing other... Uh, countries that don't share our values. Ukrainian President Zelensky thanked Biden for banning Russian oil imports as he continues his push for a no-fly zone alongside 27 foreign policy experts who signed this letter calling for NATO to implement one. The fault is with the occupants, but the responsibility is with those who for the last 13 days, somewhere out there on the West, somewhere in their offices, can't approve an obviously necessary decision. Those who still haven't secured Ukrainian skies from the Russian killers. Biden saying today that Putin is determined to continue on his murderous path, no matter the cost. This much is already clear. Ukraine will never be a victory for Putin. Putin may be able to take a city, but he'll never be able to hold the country. Now, Jake, when it comes to establishing a no-fly zone, both President Biden here at the White House and NATO allies have made clear that is not something that's on the table for them because they say it risks pulling them into this broader war with Russia. But when it comes to Zelensky's other request, which is to supply Ukraine with more aircraft, saying basically what he told lawmakers the other day, that if they don't have to do the fighting and flying, Ukrainian pilots will do that if they could just give them more aircraft. That is a discussion that's happening behind the scenes. It remains to be seen how it's going to be resolved given it is a very complicated issue. But we should note that when it comes to that congressional aid for Ukraine that is being discussed right now on Capitol Hill, Senate, Major- or Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said today it has grown up to $14 billion from the $10 billion we were initially talking about. Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Let's discuss with Republican Congressman Mike McCall of Texas. He is the ranking Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee and just got back from Poland where he was visiting with refugees. Congressman, Is there any sign that the sanctions that the U.S. and Europeans have implemented so far are are having any effect on stopping Russia from attacking Ukraine? And do you think this new move by Biden, this U.S. ban on Russian energy imports, will do the trick? Well, I think the sanctions are starting to have a crippling impact. The uh, sanctions on the central bank have brought the ruble down to one penny. I think uh, other sanctions are working. Um, but the fact is, I think uh, to answer your question, Mr. Putin is all in this war. Um, he can't he can't go backwards in time now, uh, and it's a it's a legacy issue uh, for him. So uh, I think he's put a hundred percent now of what he has into Ukraine, and I don't see that turning back. But we want to make it as painful as possible. I agree with the president's decision to ban the import of Russian oil. It's eight percent of what we import. Secretary Blinken asked me about this when we were in Poland. And I strongly encourage them to do so, uh, if anything, for a moral, symbolic gesture that we cannot fund Putin's war machine. And uh, the blood uh, that's being spilled over there, we can't be a, a conspirator to that by funding it. So let's talk about that, because the White House has signaled this move uh, could open the door for potential new deals um, with other countries with despotic rulers, uh, Saudi Arabia, Venezuela, and Iran, because the loss of Russian oil needs to be offset. 
if this is one way to keep gas prices lower for the American people to, to get fuel from those other three countries, would you support it? Well, this is, this is what I would call the failed energy policy is a failed foreign policy. Uh, we shouldn't even be having this discussion. We shouldn't have been importing Russian energy to begin with. The Keystone Pipeline alone would provide more barrels per day than what we import uh, from Russia. Uh, the closing down of ANWR, the closing down of licensing and permits in the United States. When we were becoming energy independent uh, and we were leading the export, uh, and now we have to be relying on countries like our, you know, our adversaries like Venezuela, um, you know, and Iran. And we, he's denouncing OPEC not producing enough energy. Why are we doing that in the United States of America, where we can produce uh, more clean energy? Uh, and not have to be uh, reliant on our foreign nation adversaries. It is true that President Biden opposes Anwar and uh, the Keystone Pipeline, but but he pushed back today and said it's simply not true that his policies were suppressing domestic oil and natural gas production. T- take a listen. We're approaching a record levels of oil and gas production in the United States, and we're on track to set a record oil production next year. In the United States, 90 percent of onshore oil production takes place on land that isn't owned by the federal government. And of the remaining 10% that occurs on federal land, the oil and gas industry has millions of acres leased. So let me be clear, let me be clear. They are not using them for production now. That's their decision. These are the facts. We should be honest about the facts. Your, your response? Well, I think the signal from the administration has stifled our production domestically. And I would, I would answer by saying, you know, if we're doing such a great job, why would we have to be reliant on, you know, the Ayatollah or Maduro down in Venezuela, you know, or OPEC nations in the Middle East? Um, I think if we had a strong energy policy that we want to produce energy in the United States, uh, that, you know, while we want to convert to uh, renewables and, and other uh, types of energy, uh, you can't just cancel uh, fossil fuels out completely. And I, I think uh, we're seeing uh, now, the, the problems with this administration's energy policy coming back to haunt us as we look towards our foreign nation adversaries to provide us with our energy supply. Do you think the oil and gas industry in the United States uh, should, well, they made record profits last year, right, 2021? I mean, should they maybe set their sights in terms of profits a little lower, knowing the pain that we're all going to go through? They don't have to have record profits every year. Well, you know, they've been under attack for quite some time. You know, I, I know a lot of them, but I think, you know, the pain would be relieved if we would allow them you know, to open up Anwar again, to do the colonial pipeline so that we don't, you know, have these high gas prices and we don't have to import from our foreign nation adversaries. I think this is going to be, you know, look, we try, we're trying to be bipartisan as Americans in helping the people of Ukraine with lethal military aid, but I think uh, this president's energy policy has created a really bad foreign policy, and you can't escape the fact that energy policy is national security. So Republicans were were blaming Biden for higher gas prices, as you have been well before the war in Ukraine broke out. So when the prices go up again because of this ban on Russian oil, um, will Republicans ask voters to understand that at least some of that is because of standing up for democracy in Ukraine, or is Biden just going to be attacked no matter what? Well, I I think I will be honest that that is in part why 
uh, they are being increased, and it is a moral question of funding uh, the slaughter that's happening uh, right now in, in Ukraine. Uh, but the fact of the matter is it didn't have to happen. If we had an energy policy, in the previous administration, we were becoming very much energy independent, the leading exporter. Why do we allow the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to move forward into Europe? Why weren't we providing more LNG terminals to Europe? That's a, the pathway we were on until this president changed that. So then now Europe is 40% dependent on Russia. And that's why, you know, to your earlier point, why they can't make the same commitment we're making here in the United States. Uh, it seems to me NATO allies, the United States and our other allies need to get off of this dependency of, of energy from not only Russia, but all the other foreign nation adversaries. And until we do so, we are very vulnerable. Congressman Mike McCall, ranking Republican House Foreign Affairs. Good to see you again, sir. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. It's one of the poorest countries in Europe, but they are opening their doors and hearts to help thousands of Ukrainians pouring across their border. We're going to go live to a refugee site in Moldova next. Stay with us. Our world lead now, as of today, more than two million Ukrainian refugees have fled their homes and left nearly everything behind, according to a United Nations official. Just in the last two weeks, the human toll is unbelievable. As Ukraine's first lady puts it in a heart-wrenching Facebook post, quote, look into the eyes of these tired women and children who carry with them the pain and heartache of leaving loved ones and life as they knew it behind, unquote. CNN senior international correspondent Ivan Watson just spoke with one of those refugees who fled to Moldova, the small country just southwest of Ukraine. Ivan, what did she have to tell you? Well, I heard a lot of anger and defiance from her and from other refugees. Anger, of course, at the Russian military that has invaded their country, but also at their Russian friends who uh, they accuse of repeating the talking points of the Kremlin-backed media claims like, hey, it's the Ukrainian army that's actually blowing up Ukrainian cities uh, and that this is uh, a Russian campaign to purge fascists and Nazis uh, from Ukraine. Take a listen to what this woman uh, told me. We are Ukrainians. It's our land. My My son was born in independent Ukraine. I was it's our land independent. Nobody can enter our land. And if, you, if someone is entering, we have to answer. Because it's our motherland. We have no other choice. We are very peaceful people. We are not Nazi. We're just on other land with hands up. Please, we want to live. We want to be happy. Stop shooting, please. Now, this woman, Marina, was speaking uh, at an indoor sports center, uh, squash courts and, and uh, uh, paddleball courts that are being used now to house hundreds of refugees. It just shows you how they've had to improvise to kind of uh, deal with the tens of thousands of people coming in. Uh, and she again pointed out Vladimir Putin claims he is doing the, quote, denazification of Ukraine, but she is a Ukrainian Jew from Odessa, as were most of the other refugees at these squash courts being supported by the uh, Jewish community of Moldova, 
other non-governmental organizations like the World Jewish Congress, hundreds of these people will be headed to Israel. And her own son has joined the self-defense forces in Odessa. He's a lawyer. Uh, she says that this whole story that the Kremlin has come up with about fighting fascists in Ukraine just is not true. Jake. Ivan Watson in Moldova, thank you so much. It's the first photo of the WNBA star since she was arrested in Russia. Our next guest is trying to help Brittany Griner be released. Stay with us. In our world lead, the families of Trevor Reed and Paul Whelan, two former U.S. Marines detained in Russia for years, are pleading with the White House to continue to work for their loved ones' release as tensions continue with Russia over its unprovoked war against Ukraine, slaughtering the Ukrainian people. Whelan's brother says that his brother's freedom and those of other Americans held by Russia unjustly should be part of any future negotiations with the Kremlin, while the family of Trevor Reed held a demonstration in Fort Worth, Texas earlier today to try to raise awareness of Trevor's case ahead of President Biden's trip there. And they say they were deeply, deeply disappointed to be denied a meeting with the president. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says they are working to schedule a meeting but they don't, quote, have a time or date or anything like that. Reed's father says his son's health is deteriorating in Russian captivity. And now he's coughing blood uh, daily. He has an off and on fever. He has pain in his lungs. Some of that uh, may be a result of uh, long COVID, which he had back in, I believe, May. And when he was in a Moscow prison, our son is innocent. WNBA superstar Brittany Griner is the latest high-profile American detained in Russia. She was arrested at a Moscow airport last month after authorities claimed they found cannabis oil during a search of her luggage. Russian state media released this photo taken at a police station showing her holding a sign with her name on it. Her current whereabouts are unclear. Let's discuss this all with sports journalist Tamron Sproul, who created a Change.org campaign to try and secure Griner's Release, thank you so much for joining us, Tamron. More than 36,000 people have now signed on to your petition, making it one of the fastest growing in the past 24 hours. What actions are you calling for the Biden administration to take? At this point, with so much going on, and as you said, the Ukrainian people being slaughtered, other uh, Americans being held hostage, and all of the current uh, things happening with the invasion, uh, making it that much harder to get them out. So I just don't want Brittany Griner and the other uh, people being held in Russian prisons to be lost in the narrative. I don't want uh, time to just pass and for them to kind of fall through the cracks with all the um, ramifications of what's happening due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. There are a lot of viewers who might not be familiar with her status in women's basketball. Can you give us an idea of just how important Brittany is to the sport? Um, Brittany Griner is an icon. I would consider her um, definitely on the court. She's a champion. She's a gold medalist. Um, she's won championships for the team she played for in Russia, uh, E-Kat, uh, Ekaterinburg. And off the court, though, she came out as a gay woman before even signing her contract with the Phoenix Mercury, where she's played her entire career. And that made a statement. She, you know, wanted to live authentically. She didn't want to have to hide who she is. And that has been the real game changer in our society. Um, just by being visible, allowing herself to say, this is me, and to give other people permission who 
are closeted and perhaps afraid to come out, um, you know, just a little bit of inspiration to live their truth. And of course, we know that Russia uh, has very hard line policies against LGBTQ people. And we also see in the U.S., uh, such as what happens in Florida with what people are calling the don't say gay bill. Um, these groups that are have been marginalized and traditionally oppressed um, make it that much more concerning mm -hmm. that she's there. And we we don't want her to get lost in the narrative because of that. The WNBA says that all other players are out of Russia, but you write that there's largely been silence from the league and just one statement from her team, the Phoenix Mercury. What more do you want the WNBA and her team to do? I believe transparency would go a long way to alleviating some of the nerves and anxiety. Who knows what, why they are being silent? You know, maybe they've been instructed to be, we don't know that. Um, but not having a narrative, not communicating what's going on, leaves a lot of worry and leaves us to some fans, if you just go online, are just afraid that she's going to just be lost. Um, I've seen people write, oh, the season's supposed to start in May. What, we're just going to carry on without Brittany Griner on the court as if that's okay. Um, and so it would be great if they communicated what exactly they're doing. And also other questions. Why was she there after the call for Americans to leave? You know, what role did her Russian team play and not getting her out of there sooner, as well as other uh, U.S. players um, who were kind of late to return to the U.S. Uh, John Quill Jones of the Connecticut Sun uh, posted on uh, social media, you know, that it was just a trying time to get out of there and that she was in tears. Um, so we don't know what happened, but all of this boils down to these women have been playing overseas for years since the league began because they don't earn enough, uh, nothing comparable to what NBA players earn. And that's why they were there. And that's the issue that also needs to be addressed, the root cause. Tamron Sproul, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Coming up, a verdict in the first January 6th trial. What that means for the cases against other alleged insurrectionists. Stay with us. And our politics lead today in Washington, D.C., a guilty verdict in the first federal trial related to the January 6th Capitol insurrection. A jury found rioter Guy Reffitt guilty of all five charges against him, including obstruction of a congressional proceeding, interfering with police during the riot, and transporting a firearm for that purpose. Let's bring in CNN's Paula Reed. Paula, this trial had some dramatic moments, including Reffitt's own son testifying against his father. And that's right, Jake. During the week-long trial, the jury heard testimony from Reffitt's teenage son, Jackson, who allegedly tipped off the FBI about his father before the attack. Now, Jackson testified that his dad had, quote, snowballed into a far-right extremist following the 2016 election of Donald Trump, and that he had become increasingly hostile to political figures who he believed were breaking the law. Now, the son also testified that his father threatened him and his sister, that if they turned him in, they would be traitors and, quote, traitors get shot. But, Jake, the most damning evidence against Refik came from Refik himself. He repeatedly, both before and after the riot, recorded himself in various forums talking about what he was going to do and then about what he had just done. Refik was charged with attempting to storm the Capitol while armed with a gun and zip ties. Prosecutors accused him of being the one who, quote, lit the match on the west side of the Capitol, where some of the most brutal attacks on law enforcement took place. Interestingly, after today's verdict, his wife 
had a message for other defendants facing charges related to the Capitol attack. Let's take a listen. Don't take a plea. Do not take a plea. They want us to take a plea. The reason that we have all guilty verdicts is they are making a point out of Guy, and that is to intimidate the other members of the one sixers. And we will all fight together. Refit is scheduled to be sentenced on June 8th. And Paula, could today's guilty verdict impact similar cases for other one sixers, as his wife called them? Absolutely, especially when it comes to defense strategy. Jake, this was high stakes for the Justice Department. Lawyers representing other defendants are watching this closely. And this this was a swift verdict. That sends a message that federal prosecutors have evidence to support charges and that juries may not be sympathetic to those who allegedly participated in the Capitol attack. So, Jake, today's conviction could speed up plea deals in those other felony cases, unless, of course, they take that advice from Reffitt's wife. Right. Paula Reed, thank you so much. Coming up next, why the last letter of the alphabet is now the first sign of support for Vladimir Putin's war in Ukraine. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour in Florida, a school battle coming to a head as a controversial bill regulating K-3 through classroom discussions about sexual orientation and gender identity now heads to Governor DeSantis's desk. Plus, the meaning of a letter. There are no Russian flags flying on the tanks and trucks from the Russian army, but almost every Russian military vehicle is stamped with a giant Z. What could that mean? And... We lead this hour with breaking news. President Biden banning all imports of Russian oil to the U.S. as Vladimir Putin shows no signs of stopping his barbaric invasion of Ukraine. New video shows Russia moving a special armored military train into Ukraine from annexed Crimea. And in the southern Ukrainian town of Mykolaiv, constant Russian shelling has shaken residents. Fears are rising that the Russian military might storm that city. People there have piled tires at the entrances to the city, ready to light them on fire if the Russians do, in fact, advance. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh joins us now live from Mykolaiv. Uh, Nick, tell us what you've been observing on the ground there. Yeah, Jake, it is, I have to say, quite troubling how dark this city that's normally bustling has fallen in the last hours. A couple of hours ago, we were seeing what seemed to be outgoing shelling on its outskirts that lit the sky up uh, briefly. And um, at dusk, we saw what you referred to earlier on, which is the piling up of tires just down here below. The only real light in the town right now is that of police cars that seem to be patrolling relatively constantly. The streetlights have been turned off. The city basically bracing itself for the possibility of some sort of assault. Now, the tyres were an extraordinary appearance because the relatively bullish uh, regional governor, Vitaly Kim, had sounded very confident in the past days about kicking the Russians out of the international airport and how they'd essentially been capturing lots of Russian armour of late. Uh, Today, he sounded a very different tone, saying that he'd understood that the Russians thought they could captured the city, quote, at any cost, and asking those locals who were not willing to fight at higher risk, he said, uh, to bring spare tyres to any intersection they possibly could. Two hours later, and we've seen a lot of people literally down here before dusk bringing their cars up and just pulling tyres out and dumping them at various positions. Two hours later, he said, look, you've been amazing, the people of Mikolaev. You've done what we needed. 
please don't set fire to the tires until I give you the order. And this is an extraordinary guy because he's been using his Telegram account here, the social media messaging app, to essentially galvanise, rally the population over the last days. And so there's a feeling, I think, here, Jake, that we are potentially bracing for something quite bad. We've seen the assault over the last 10 days being at times random, a lot of artillery on the skyline. It has been exceptionally quiet tonight. And this in the last hours or so, uh, the same regional governor, Vitaly Kim, who said they're not necessarily expecting an assault tonight more something at dawn. And this city, Mykolaiv, is, is obviously vitally important because of where it sits on the Black Sea coast. And tonight it is chillingly silent. Jake? Nick Payton Wallace reporting live in Mykolaiv. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Ukrainian President Zelensky today addressed British lawmakers via video conference. He promised the Ukrainians would, quote, fight to the end. CNN senior international correspondent Matthew Chance joins us now live from Kiev. And Matthew, there were some very, one assumes, purposeful echoes of Winston Churchill in Zelensky's speech. Tell us what he said. Yeah, that's right. He um, he referenced the uh, Churchill's famous fight them on the beaches speech by saying that, you know, we will you know, not surrender uh, to to the Russians. We'll, we'll fight them in the fields and in the forests and we'll fight them on the shores and in the streets. And so that was obviously very resonant intentionally of that famous, um, you know, Churchill, Churchill speech. And he got a standing ovation for it. It was very emotional indeed. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, again, underlining uh, his status as, you know, a real, a real war leader uh, in this country. I have to say, though, his central request or demand of the British Parliament was, again, for a no-fly zone uh, to be imposed uh, over the skies over Ukraine to stop Russia's bombing of civilian areas and to prevent it from degrading further uh, the Ukrainian military. It's a call that he's been making when anybody will listen to him. He made it to the, the Americans earlier, uh, to, to the US, uh, to the Europeans, and then he made it again uh, in, the, in the British Parliament. And it was really interesting that, you know, after he finished that speech and after he got that standing ovation, no one, from the main political parties in Britain, even mentioned uh, the idea of a no-fly zone. And so it just underlines that idea, that fact, that when it comes to imposing um, a no-fly zone in the skies over Ukraine at the moment, Western countries, including Britain, including the United States, see it as a no-go area because it would bring uh, NATO pilots into direct confrontation, potentially uh, with Russia, which could be uh, a real matter for for escalation. Nevertheless, you know, uh, again, another very successful uh, speech in the sense that it underlined, uh, uh, you know, and, and sort of bolstered this sort of degree of sympathy that there is in many Western countries now for Ukraine's plight. Matthew, in the city of Sumy uh, last night in Ukraine, an official says a Russian airstrike in a residential area killed 21 Ukrainian civilians, including two children. Um, Russia, I guess, att- agreed to a sim- single humanitarian corridor out of the city for anyone who wanted to flee. Sumi, uh, did they uphold, did they hold, uphold yeah. that agreement? Um, I think to some extent they did, yes, but you're, you're right. I mean, in the, in the hours before that agreement came into force, there was this, I mean, absolutely horrific uh, incident. The U- Ukrainians are saying it was an airstrike in which 21 people were killed. I mean, I think that that has to be one of the single biggest incidents of the loss of life in a single airstrike that we've seen so far, although you know, we'll see what the final sort of total uh, is of that. The reckoning is of that when we, when we, when we see all these um, various incidents laid out. Um, but you're right, the, 
The ceasefire did hold. The corridor was made available to people coming out of the city. There's been a ceasefire um, imposed, if you like, or upheld in various cities across the country, particularly in Kiev, uh, over the course of the past 24 hours. And within the past few hours, uh, the Russians have said that they will, you know, hold fire again uh, tomorrow. And so we are seeing this succession of offers by the Russians uh, to, to stop firing, to allow citizens, uh, civilians rather, to uh, evacuate these, these, these residential areas. Um, you know, one of the reasons for that might be they want to empty them before they really go in hard um, to, to, to bring them under Russian control. So that, that may be what's one motivation behind it. We know that Russians have attacked fleeing Ukrainians, uh, even ones in what were thought to be humanitarian corridors, whether in the south of the country, uh, there was that horrific mortar explosion that the New York Times captured of that family that was killed by a a Russian uh, munition of some sort. So there's a lot of skepticism, obviously, understandable skepticism of the Russians. How are Ukrainian officials responding to this new proposal from Russia for a ceasefire in several cities? Um, Well, I mean... Yeah, they they are treating it with scepticism because you're right. I mean, we have seen these horrific scenes of, you know, green corridors uh, being being supposedly agreed by the Russians only for the civilian population to be, you know, ruthlessly shelled as they attempt to to get themselves and their families, children, old people uh, to safety. I mean, you know, remember the deliberate shelling of civilians is, you know, uh, know, a war crime. And, you know, there have been calls repeated around the world for, you know, for those responsible for this to be to be held to account. Um, But at the moment, of course, the the big concern is can those um, those green corridors work? Uh, Can these safe passages uh, be 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 opened up wide enough to allow at least the vast majority of the people trapped inside these residential areas to get out to safety? All right, Matthew Chance reporting live for us in Kiev. Thank you. Please stay safe. One letter has become synonymous with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's the letter Z, which, by the way, isn't even found in the Russian alphabet. But as CNN's Phil Black reports, after that letter was spotted on Russian tanks and Russian military vehicles, it's become a symbol for those supporting Putin's barbaric war on the Ukrainian people. It's impossible not to notice. Many of the Russian vehicles invading Ukraine carry a distinctive mark. Trucks, tanks, fighting, engineering and logistical vehicles. They are advancing through Ukraine with the letter Z, painted conspicuously in white. The people being invaded have noticed. Here in the eastern Ukrainian town of Kupyansk, an angry crowd swarms after and attacks a single vehicle. Its only obvious connection to the war, the letter Z. It's almost certainly some kind of tactical grouping. There's a million different theories about what the Z means, but I think it's just a marking, just easy doop, 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 easy thing to mark, just like a square or triangle. In a war where the wannabe conquerors are not flying their national flag, that single character has taken on special significance. Ivan Kuliak. At a recent gymnastics World Cup event, 20-year-old Russian competitor Ivan Kuliak accepted his bronze medal wearing a Z prominently on his chest. He was standing next to a Ukrainian athlete. The sports governing body described it as shocking behaviour. But how do you describe this? Terminally ill children and their carers 
formed a giant Z outside a hospice in the Russian city of Kazan. It's disgusting that the state is co-opting young children to be propaganda mechanisms for their war. It is dangerous when small little symbols become proxies for being a loyal citizen in an authoritarian regime during a time of war, because those who don't wear it, those who don't show the Z, uh, could be targeted by the state. And in this highly produced propaganda video, Russian men wearing that letter declare their support for the invasion, chanting for Russia, for the president, for Russia, for Putin. An aerial shot shows a giant Z made from the orange and black of the St. George's Ribbon, a traditional symbol of Russian military glory, usually associated with victory over Nazi Germany. By accident or design, a character that doesn't feature in Russia's alphabet has become an iconic symbol of Putin's invasion and the propaganda campaign to win support among his people. Phil Black, CNN, London. Our thanks to Phil Black for that report. Ukraine's president suggests the U.S. and its allies may be complicit in a genocide of the Ukrainian people. Up next, a senator who recently met with President Zelensky joins us to talk about that accusation. Welcome back with our world lead. President Biden today announced a full ban on Russian oil, natural gas and coal imports to the United States. President Biden saying he hopes this will, quote, deal another powerful blow to Putin's war machine. Joining us live to discuss Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who serves on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and met with President Zelensky in Ukraine before the invasion. Senator, how big of an impact Will this make in deterring Vladimir Putin's bloodshed in Ukraine, especially given the fact that this is a unilateral move made independently of European allies, though I'm sure Biden tried to get them on board? Listen, this is not a symbolic move, but without Russia, the impact, excuse me, without Europe, the impact on Russia's economy of just uh, removing their oil from import to the United States is probably limited. Um, Listen, I think there's a moral imperative for the United States to not send money to fund Putin's war, but we are a very small share of Russia's exports. And so doing this without Europe, I I don't think is necessarily going to fundamentally change Putin's calculus. It's ultimately going to be the accumulation of the impact of all of these economic sanctions that may eventually cause Putin to realize he may have a choice to be made between perpetuating this war in Ukraine and keeping a hold on power. So um, I'm glad the president went ahead with it. I think we've got to be careful to make sure that there's not too big an impact on American consumers. But without Europe, uh, the impact on Putin remains to be seen. Russian oil supplies, as you as you know, it's only a small slice of U.S. energy needs, just 8 percent in 2021. In the second half of February, the Department of Energy reported that imports dropped to zero as U.S. companies cut ties with Russia. So I guess I wonder, given the fact that American companies were already doing this, what do you what do you say about this ban? Was it necessary even? Was the free market already doing that? Well, as the United States economy continues to rev up, there was certainly going to be an increased demand on uh, energy consumption. And thus, you always have the possibility of private companies bringing in Russian energy. I think it makes sense to have this policy on the books. I just don't know that we should overhype its impact. Ultimately, the broader sanctions that we have levied on Russian banks and news of all of these private companies, from Starbucks to Coca-Cola to MasterCard, 
start pulling out of Russia. That's really where the primary impact is going to be. But let's just admit the insanity of a U.S. economy that continues to run on oil that is provided to us by dictators. The reality is, if we're not getting this oil from Russia, we're likely going to be importing more from another brutal dictator in Saudi Arabia, for instance, or we may have to go to Venezuela for oil. We should ultimately learn our lesson here and become energy independent and choose to invest in clean domestic energy so we never have to choose between one dictator versus another. Yeah, I mean, Republicans say the same thing, except they're not talking about clean clean energy. They're just talking about American uh, fuel, uh, fossil fuels from Louisiana or Anwar or, or Keystone. But on that subject, though, you raise an, uh, an important point. You talk about the moral imperative of the United States not funding Putin's brutal, barbaric war against the Ukrainian people. But we're now the solution to that is that we're now going to be funding Maduro in, in Venezuela or or. Uh, the mullahs in Iran or, or the, the Saudi regime. I mean, these are also governments that are doing things that, that they'll take our money and use it to do things that are morally repugnant. Well, there's, I don't think massive U.S. oil imports from Venezuela or Iran coming anytime soon. It is, though likely, we are going to need to import more oil from the Saudis. And on any given day, the behavior of the Saudi regime rivals that of the Venezuelans and the Iranians. I think you need to remember, when you talk about domestic oil production, there's no guarantee that that stays in the United States. When we produce oil here in the United States, that goes to the highest bidder. Sometimes that's here in the U.S., but Oftentimes, that oil gets sent to China. Uh, that oil gets sent to Europe. Renewable energy stays in the United States. When we are producing energy from solar panels or from wind turbines, that stays on the American grid. So if you really care about keeping American-made energy in the United States, you should be investing in renewables. So gas prices are at record highs. Uh, and a lot of Americans were already struggling uh, to buy gas for their car. This might not affect you or me. But, you know, people in rural America who travel long distances, people who are living paycheck to paycheck, this really makes a difference. Um, What can the administration, the Congress do to help those struggling Americans? Polls indicate that people, including a majority of Republicans, are willing to to sacrifice for this moral imperative. But but what more can be done for the people who really can't afford this? No, no listen, I, I think you're exactly right. And I've frankly been saying this for the last several days, is that I, I frankly didn't want the administration to move out too quickly on this policy without making sure that we could backfill that Russian oil. Because I do think it's really easy for the political elites in Washington to tell low-income consumers they should pay more for a gallon of gasoline in order to save Ukraine. That's a lot harder for people that don't have the extra money in Waterbury, Connecticut. So I think in the short run, that probably does mean we're going to have to um, bring in more oil from places like uh, Saudi Arabia. I'm interested in a proposal that some of my colleagues have here to temporarily suspend the gas tax uh, or lower the gas tax to try to defray the cost for consumers. But uh, I think as long as this war is happening in Ukraine, um, the market is going to price in an amount of instability that's going to keep energy prices high. Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, thank you so much. Good to see you, sir. Coming up, U.S. gas prices inching closer and closer to $5 a gallon. How high will they go? Stay with us. In our Money League today, more big American brands cut ties with the Kremlin earlier today. Coca-Cola says it's suspending business in Russia. McDonald's says it's closing all of its locations in that country. Then there's President Biden's move today 
to ban oil imports from Russia, coming as gas prices already are soaring to an all-time high. The price for a gallon of regular now averages 4.17, according to AAA. That crushes the old record of 4.11, set in 2008. Not only are gas prices bound to go even higher, as CNN's Pete Montine reports, the spike is already spilling over onto other areas. New record-high gas prices are pumping drivers full of anxiety. Uber driver Mohammed Tarani says he's done circling the D.C. area for rides. Instead, he waits in this lot with his car turned off. A few weeks ago, it was like $3. Now it's like jumped to $2. For drivers, it's bad. It's not good. AAA says the national average for a gallon of regular gasoline hit $4.17 on Tuesday, up more than 55 cents in only a week. Some of the worst prices are on the West Coast. This station in Pasadena, California, is actually below the county average. It's horrible. You can't even live anymore. It's a big jump. Prices are soaring since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. President Joe Biden's latest measure is to ban imports of Russian oil meaning gas prices could go up even more. The decision today is not without cost here at home. It will have a short-term effect, and gas prices are going to continue going up as a result of that. The impact could go far beyond the pump. Retail groups fear Americans will lose extra spending money for things like food and clothes. Even summer trips could cost more, with jet fuel just reaching a 14-year high. Gas prices find their way into the cost of virtually everything. Relief can't come soon enough for Uber drivers like Mohammed Tarani. What he pays for gas comes out of his paycheck. It is tough. I mean, but what can we do? It is what it is for now. We also heard from one driver near Chicago. He says it used to cost him about $85 to top off his pickup truck. Now he says it costs more like $120. You know, this is all coming as more people are iron guy going back to work. Many return to work days are set for the next few weeks. And Jake, it's commuters who are in for really big sticker shock here. Yeah. Pete Montine, thanks so much. Let's jump into this. And Alyssa, it's, I have to say, it, it's hard to imagine a lot of the same Republicans who pushed for this ban on, on Russian uh, oil and gas, um, not ultimately blaming Biden for gas prices, even though I, I realize they were high before this down the road. There's not going to be a lot of nuanced conversation about this in October, is what I'm saying. Well, let me start by saying this. I give the Biden administration tremendous credit for the last couple of weeks of how they've handled the Ukraine situation. Um, I think they've managed to unite the Europeans, which is no small task. Um, but I will say this. Gas prices were rising before the, um, before the conflict started. And the problem is, as Republicans are going to say, we're not doing domestic production. We could be producing as many as 200,000 barrels of oil here in the U.S. as opposed to exporting it from Russia or even from Venezuela or Iran. So I think our, you know, the argument you're going to see heading into the midterms is, A, don't import it from tyrants anywhere, whether it's in South America or in Russia, but also what are we doing domestically to address this issue? Well, what we're doing is, is drilling. The rig count, Baker Hughes is a, a drilling company. The rig count a year ago was 403 domestic, 650 today. Okay. Now, Joe Biden doesn't drill. ExxonMobil does. And they have the oil industry in America. 9,000 leases that they're not using. Why? Did they all of a sudden, did Exxon join the Sierra Club? Are they worried about the environmental impact of their drilling? No. They want high prices. They want this spike. They're popping champagne corks in the Exxon boardroom now. And uh, I, I do think the White House ought to be more candid. Yes, this is, this is Putin causing it. But I know who's profiting from it. It ain't the well, American they- people. 
they were today during you know during the White House press briefing. Now, how many Americans actually listen to or right. hear what what ultimately the press secretary says? But she did. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki did talk a lot about the fact that they are trying to explain to the American public, and she said that she hoped the press would too. That um, that yes, on federal production, she said there are actually nine thousand approved permits out there that are unused, yeah. and that on, on top of it, you know. Uh, that Biden, the president, made this decision on the oil exports to ban the Russian oil exports very deliberately, very carefully. Some may say it was with Congress nipping at his heels. Mm -hmm. But the president has been very careful to not make a decision like this uh, without really consulting closely with European allies, knowing that they were probably not going to make this decision at the same exact time he was going to. Uh, And a lot of them haven't so far. It is a nuanced and complex issue, which is not necessarily a good thing you want to, I think you want to have if you're the politician in favor. But I will say this also, you just heard Senator Chris Murphy note, uh, the oil and gas industry, um, they, they do produce a lot of oil and gas in the United States. Domestic oil production is up, but that doesn't mean they sell it to Americans. They sell it to, as Murphy said, the highest bidder, which is often China. No, I, I think that's right. And, and Paul makes this point, and I think you, you have the Biden administration trying to make this point as well, uh, that these oil and gas companies are making tons and tons of money. I think last year was a record yep. a year in terms of their profit. They don't want to cut back on that profit, uh, even though Americans are paying uh, record high prices. I was in Alabama a couple of weeks ago, uh, and gas was something like $3. And on the pump, there was a sticker of Joe Biden uh, that said, Joe Biden did that. So so this is already baked into the cake, I think, for Joe Biden in a terrible way uh, in terms of the politics of it going into November. And, you know, the nuance of it, you know, what the oil and gas companies are doing, uh, what Russia is doing, uh, that's going to be lost, I think, as you try to make this argument uh, to Americans that are really paying explosive, you know, prices at the pump that they haven't seen in years. And a Democratic uh, member of Congress uh, said something to me that I thought was interesting, which is this is how the American people gauge inflation. Mm-hmm. Right. This is what they don't they don't look at, at, at you know, the consumer price index. Right. They just go to the pump. They see the prices are up and they're mm-hmm. mad at whoever's in charge. Right. When they're at their grocery store, when they're at the gas station. I will say I've been in a number of focus groups uh, with Democratic voters, but across the spectrum, whether it's young voters, older voters, you know, white, black voters. And so far, the Democratic base is still saying that they are trusting Biden and that they actually are with him on his decision so far on Ukraine and Russia. They do also say that, yeah, the gas prices are hurting them and that they're not happy about well, it, but the, they're still sticking with him. And the Wall Street Journal point. had a poll that actually echoed that nationally, saying that most people are in favor of this, this ban and they're willing to eat the cost for a period. But if I'm advising President Biden, which I'm not, I'd say you've got about a two-week window to figure out how, what you're doing to drive down costs. Right. That sentiment isn't going to last for that long, I think. We all are heartbroken over, over what's happening in Ukraine. But if you're living paycheck to paycheck, you just can't justify that for too long. And you heard Murphy right. there say that because uh, he said, and I, I agree, the people in Washington come up with, we, we say things like the American people can sacrifice. I'm not saying this, but I'm, I'm, I'm echoing <laughs> right. politicians that have the American people can sacrifice their important pr- principles. I can afford it. It's, it's no right. skin off my back, but there are Americans, as, mm-hmm. as Alyssa says, living paycheck to paycheck. People in rural America have to drive two hours to work or truckers. I mean, these, there are a lot of people this is really going to hurt. Again, I'm not saying there isn't a moral imperative. What does Biden need to do other than talk about the need to make the sacrifice? What can he do to help bring down prices? Well, if first, at all? he needs to explain that he gets it. 
right? Because he's driven around a limousine that, you know, he's not paying at the pump. But he has to explain to folks, he, he used to be a car guy. But Scranton you know? Joe, I mean, he knows. He used to, no, he, seriously, he lived in right. the real world for quite a while before he moved into the, the White House. That, that's first. But second, I think Senator Murphy is right. They need to look for offsets. Uh, I don't know if this is the right policy, but there are already politicians in the Democratic Party talking about a windfall profits tax on the oil companies with offsets going to, to poor and middle class families paying this bill. And then others want to put some of it toward alternative energy. And you heard Chris Murphy sort of hinting toward this. So they got to find offsets, but they shouldn't lose sight of the villain. Walt Disney said this. He said, I judge my movies based on the villain. How evil the villain is is how good the movie is. But are you saying that Putin or Putin, the oil companies? Well, that's a, I, I take Putin first. The oil companies are, are, are generally a pretty good villain, but Putin is an animal and a monster, but, but and he is causing you know, this. I think that's right. But if you are paying $5 right. to go to work you know, per gallon. It's up to and six in California. Six, I mean, this is, you, you know, all of this so sort of They still have to find offsets. You're and still the, shelling this money out. It doesn't really do right. you any good. And also, I don't think they have enough time to I, address this. Right? I would well, be trying to work with things the, the gas companies right now. I actually think that that's you're going to have a better bet for the next couple of months trying to broker a deal and saying we are in this, you know, historic moment than if you're going to try to well, what's the argument? How, how, how do you can convince oil companies yeah. to give up profits? I think that there's been huge consumer demand for companies to do the right thing with regard to, to Russia. So I actually think that the I think the consumer desire is there. They could come around. I mean, listen, it's 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 an uphill battle, but that's where I would be having the, the White House must be listening to Paul because I mean today the, the press secretary was saying that. Um, that she called this these gas price hikes, you know, this gas issue, Putin's to, Putin Putin's is to blame. Gas, yeah. It was Putin gas hikes, and so that is the villain that the White House is, you know, has squarely in their sights when they're trying to explain this to them. Well, it's a very very important issue, and a lot of people out there uh, who are going to be feeling a lot of pain, and uh, we all hope, of course, that we figure out a way out of this. My thanks to the panel. You might not believe the latest fight in Florida. There's a controversial new law sparking outrage. What does it say? Coming up. In our world lead, moments ago, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky released a new video. He thanked President Biden for announcing the U.S.'s new ban on Russian oil, natural gas and coal imports to this country. Zelensky saying, quote, it is very simple. Every penny paid to Russia turns into bullets and projectiles that fly to other sovereign states, unquote. Here to discuss now the U.S. Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, Victoria Nuland, who just briefed lawmakers on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, what direct specific impact do you think President Biden's ban on Russian energy imports into the U.S. will have? Well, Jake, 70 percent of Russian oil is now offline thanks to sanctions and bans like the one that President Biden put in place now. And I was listening to your last panel. We need to remember that the villain here is President Putin and President Zelensky is right. Every drop of Russian oil that is consumed is another drop of Ukrainian blood spilled. So watching the way that President Biden has gone about announcing these sanctions, it's it's obvious that he's been trying to work closely with the European Union and NATO and sometimes even letting them take the lead, for instance, on uh, the sanctions personally against Putin. Um, I don't need to tell you that the EU has significantly more exposure to Russian energy than the U.S., which is about seven or eight percent of our imports. Uh, You know, Europe completely depends upon it. Biden made this move unilaterally. I assume that suggests that he couldn't get EU on board. Don't doesn't the world need the EU to be fully committed to a full ban at some point for this to have the intended impact on Putin and and the war? 
Well, Jake, as, as you said, first of all, President Biden did consult very closely, including yesterday, with key allies to make clear that we intended to move, but also that we understand that their exposure is much greater, and that because historically so many countries in Europe have depended on Russian gas and oil, that they are not going to be able to turn on a dime on this one, as we are. There are other things that they can do that are difficult for us to do. So part of what we're trying to do as this allied family is each contribute from where we are strong. But I do think that this conflict has put a shot in the arm to those in Europe who want to diversify away from Russian gas and oil, and we will be able to accelerate that process in the period ahead. Putin has called these sanctions, he said they're equivalent to a, quote, declaration of war. Is there any scenario in which the U.S. might talk about lifting some of the measures if Putin started removing troops from Ukraine? In other words, are they on the negotiating table? Is there a way to use these sanctions to give Putin an off-ramp? Is that the exact purpose of them? Well, the primary purpose of these sanctions... First, before we instituted them and when we were just talking about them, was an effort to deter Putin from going in. That obviously did not succeed, but now we have to punish him, and unfortunately we have to make the Russian people too also feel uh, what he has done. Uh, to global peace and security. So that's the first purpose, is to ensure that over the long term, over the medium term, ideally over the short term, that this is a strategic loss for President Putin. Uh, That said, if in fact he gets out of Ukraine, if in fact he gives back what he has stolen and makes reparations, obviously the Ukraine, we will work with the Ukrainians on lifting of sanctions. I want to live for that happy day. Yeah, uh, well, today the director of national intelligence, uh, Avril Haines, said, said Putin's not going to be deterred. He might escalate because he, quote, perceives this as a war he cannot afford to lose, unquote. Give the American people a clear-eyed assessment. How do you see this ending? Look, he is losing tanks and aircraft. He has thousands of soldiers dying who will go home in body bags to Russians. He has citizens now who have zero access to a free press or ATMs or Western technology. The pressure on him is growing. And sooner or later, he will wake up or the Russian people will wake up. Unfortunately, it could be a long and difficult grind to get from here to there. And I think all of us owe a huge debt to the Ukrainian people because it it is they who are sacrificing not just for their democracy, but for all of our democracies. I think a lot of Americans, tens of millions of Americans, are are heartbroken by the images we're seeing, uh, crying children, uh, dead bodies of families. Um, I do want to note, if it's okay with you, Your grandparents were Ukrainian immigrants. Um, I don't know if that makes it extra hard for you to watch, but you do have a tie uh, to this country. Actually, Jake, my grandparents came from nearby. They came, some some of my family came from Pinsk in Belarus, where Russian soldiers have walked through on their way to Ukraine. And others came from Moldova, which is another country that Putin is is threatening, particularly if he uh, is successful in an attack on Odessa and then keeps going north. So, yes, I am proud to be an American diplomat, and that is only possible because 
My grandparents uh, left Russia to ex escape the, the Tsar's pogroms and the Tsar's army, um, and unfortunately, we're having a repeat of Russian history in terms of the brutality against their own against the citizens of the region. Victoria Newland, the Under Secretary of State for Political Affairs, thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Thank you, Jake. Parents again at the center of politics, this time in Florida, a bill heading to Governor DeSantis's desk banning some conversations in some classrooms. That's next. In our national lead, Florida's state Senate just passed a contentious and controversial bill that would limit conversations about sexual orientation and gender identity in classrooms for younger kids, kindergarten through third grade. Now the legislation is headed to Republican Governor Ron DeSantis's desk. He is expected to sign it. It's officially named the Parental Rights and Education Bill. It is unofficially called the Don't Say Gay Bill by its opponents who worry that it will harm kids who identify as LGBTQ. CNN's Leila Santiago reports on the bill from Florida. She reports at the state that may be paving the way for other conservative legislatures to copy their newest classroom crusade. Despite the statewide protests, show the Florida legislature that what they are doing does not represent us. The emotional pleas. I never knew that living my truth would, uh, would cause church members to leave my dad's church. <laughs> or friends to stop talking to me. 22 yeas, 17 nays, Mr. President. So the bill passes. Florida's Senate today passed Bill 1557, a bill that essentially bars teachers from discussing sexual orientation and gender identity in the classrooms of young students. The bill calls for procedures to reinforce the fundamental right of parents and prohibits instructions on sexual orientation or gender identity in K through third grade in a manner that is not age appropriate, but doesn't define what that means. And we're going to make sure that parents are able to send their kid to kindergarten without having some of this stuff injected into their school curriculum. There is no curriculum for K through third, third grade. And so if that's in sex education, so if that's the case, then what are we doing right now? Why is this even necessary? Florida Democratic and openly gay Senator Chevron Jones argued the bill is a political move that is hurtful to the LGBTQ community. Critics refer to it as the don't say gay bill, even though the bill does not specifically prohibit the use of the word gay. The spokesperson for Governor Ron DeSantis, however, on her personal Twitter account, has called it something very different. The anti-grooming bill, grooming a predatory practice used by sex offenders to gain trust and seduce children, which is not in the bill either. There is an assertion that LGBTQ people simply by existing are a threat to children. That is bigotry. It's at the core of this bill. The bill now heads to the desk of Governor Ron DeSantis, who is expected to sign it into law. I think it's inappropriate to be injecting those matters like a transgenderism into a kindergarten classroom. And to those who think you can legislate gay people away, I'm sorry. You cannot. And Jake, we should mention that in a staff email today, Disney, the CEO of Disney, which, by the way, employs 75,000 people in Florida, said that the leadership there unequivocally stands with the LGBTQ community. But he stopped short of taking a stand on the bill itself. Hmm. How soon is Governor DeSantis expected to sign this bill into law? 
you know, what the timeline is exactly, we still are waiting to hear on that. But I can tell you in speaking to some of the LGBTQ advocates, they are hoping that maybe there's a possibility for some sort of change of heart here. But I think for the most part, most people are expecting him to continue with what has been his support of, of this bill and sign it pretty quickly. Leila Santiago in Miami, thank you so much. Coming up, she's one of the most popular pop stars on the planet right now, and she just got sued for the second time in days. That's next. And our pop culture lead, British superstar musician Dua Lipa, is facing a second lawsuit today, accusing her of copying music for her smash hit, Levitating, just days after another band made the same allegation in a lawsuit filed Friday. The first complaint from the group Article Sound System alleges that Lipa's song is substantially similar to its 2017 track, Live Your Life. Well, you can judge for yourself. The second lawsuit alleges that Lipa's hit tune copied the melody to the 1979 track Wiggle and Giggle All Night. The songwriters highlight interviews with Lipa in which they say she admits to taking inspiration from historic music to create her album. Billboard named Lipa's levitating song of the year for 2021 after spending 68 weeks on the Hot 100 chart. I guess to some people, imitation is not the sincerest form of flattery. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.